0: Oh Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia Mamma Mia,
1: let me go Beelzebub,
0: as the devil put aside For me, for me, for
2: me Welcome to the very first Rocks Back Pages podcast My name is Barney Hoskins I'm the editorial director of Rocks Back Pages I'm sitting here with Mark Pringle Who is the chief archivist of the Rocks Back Pages online library. Hello, (laughs) Barney. Beautifully delivered, Mark. (laughs) We are here to tell you what is new on Rocks Back Pages this week. We're going to start with the great Freddie Mercury, about whom a biopic has just been released. Uh, The rather reviled, as far as I can tell, Bohemian Rhapsody, whose US release date is today, November 2nd, we uh, are featuring an audio interview with the great Freddie from 1976 by Cream writer Robert Duncan. What did you make of it, Mark? Well, I, I, it's fascinating.
0: I mean, the, the sound quality isn't great, but it's certainly perfectly listenable. It's February 76. They're on the, what's the album? For Night of the opera. Night of the Opera uh, tour where they'd just been in America for about, uh, maybe about three weeks, having toured the UK and Europe. Um, Freddie comes over really well. He comes over as kind a fairly sweet guy, not a sort of braggart that one sort of imagines from his sort of stage persona. And uh, he talks in quite good detail about the nature of the band, about their interestingly academic backgrounds about the management problems they've had, and goes into a, quite a lot of detail on Bohemian Rhapsody. So it's it's a
2: it's a really good interview. Are we going to listen to a little bit of Freddie talking about Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah. Great. Let's do that.
1: Do you have any interest in uh, making uh, films, uh, writing films, or, or something possibly based around a song? Or, um, that idea appeals to me as well, but it's it's something that's way in the future. I'd like to sort of put across, there's so much more that the Queen can do at the moment. It's, it's, the nearest we've got to film is that we made a film of Bohemian Rhapsody, which was, when I back to your question, which is the nearest we've got, something trying to put across that kind of musical feeling into into, in, in, into a film of, of just us playing. I mean, obviously it wasn't a oh, Not was not, not a kind of... Uh, no, 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 this was... But even then, if you see this film, it, 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 it's a step further. It's not just you have got to see it. It's not just us um, performing. It's performing plus us in a very mood, trying to put across this sort of the drama of it all. And uh, <laughs> it's sort it's of it worked. Six minutes really. Like stuff like a Galileo come down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, Can you imagine how we'd do it? But we. Was it an astronomer in the band? So I suppose. It's it's just uh, in the film we've we've captured it. We've some bracket. Sort of we, I mean, so it's we've let, parts of it are nonsensical. They're there maybe they're funny almost. I mean, yeah, this is, yeah. you, know. you you mean the opposite opera, opera bit? Yeah, with yeah, yeah, they are. So they're meant to be. You see, there's sort of, well, not Well, That's not for you, but they're meant to be. That's, that's sort of. I wanted to use that certain that section as just strict opera, but opera in the sense that that a lot of for the layman. You know what I mean? Because I did I didn't want to sort of put across. The opera as a I not trying to tell people, look, this is an authentic piece of opera which which and I've done a lot of research into, but like, that's, that's that's silly because I I don't know that much about opera. But I'm just trying to say, look, this is Queen's way of, of using opera operatic overtones in rock and roll, if that makes any sense. And therefore I had to use call it cliches or whatever, and things like Galileo and certain certainly certain overused um, phrases in, in opera. Mm-hmm. What's mm-hmm. the point mm-hmm. to... To, to create... It or... it was, I mean, you know, one doesn't have to sort of keep to, to uh, lyrical sort of format all the time. One can sort of... I mean, uh, the, the thing I wanted to put across in that piece was just more drama and, 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 and atmosphere more than anything. I wanted to create operatic worlds. Mm-hmm. And in that section, I think the lyrical content took second place. I was well aware of it. Yeah. I wanted to do that. I wanted... For that, I just did... Uh, the worst but the sheer sort of uh, lyrical, not, not, not so much lyrical, the um, the pronunciation sort of yeah, the power than right. anything That's else. Adorable. Yes. Um, do you laugh? Or, or did you laugh when you wrote that or do you ever laugh when you're People laugh. I do no. laugh. I mean, I do, I mean when, when we sometimes come to the a little bit, especially because I got Roger to such, there's a very, high sort of, things. they can be, they are sort of. <laughs> At the point when we're actually doing them, it's quite possible. One must try and keep a for <laughs> the based because, oh, God, you know, we have done some silly things in our time, but I mean, that did take the cake. Because we did do something like 180 voices between the three of us, yeah. four of us, And after after you've done, no, 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 about um, 180 times, you feel you're in a lunatic asylum, and, <laughs> and you feel, or is it all going to be worth it?
2: But then it all goes. Together. okay so that was freddie mercury talking about bohemian rhapsody which at this point february 1976 is only well it's less than a year old isn't it so it's an extraordinarily new and innovative thing both it, uh, in terms of the recording in terms of the fact of the length of the song in terms of the video
0: yeah he, he talks actually um one point uh, what you've just listened to was uh, robert duncan asked him did he have any plans to make a film? He says, actually, you no. Know, we've just done one for, this, the, the, for, for this, 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 this song. It somewhat erroneously claimed that it was the very first rock video. Now, as we all know, that's simply not true. The Stones and the Beatles and many others did promo films for showing on television way before that. But it is definitely, I hate to use the word iconic, but it's an iconic moment in the history of the music video. Without a doubt. He goes into it in some detail, goes into the nature of the song. As I said, it's six and a half minutes long, something like that. Yeah. Um, the decision to release it at full length uh, rather than butcher it, to release it to single. It's, it's, it's good. It's very interesting stuff. So what you heard there was a taster, but it's, um, it's about an hour long and there's a lot of really, really strong stuff in it.
2: Like you, I was surprised by how sort of serious... Freddie is, yeah. you kind of expect him to be, I don't know, a little camp. <laughs> a little camper <laughs> than he is. Um, and, you know, he really uh, talks very seriously about Queen yep. as uh, a group of four very different individuals. Yep. Also, sort of, Queen is almost like a business.
0: Oh, but I think very much like that's, as, you know, if you listen to the interview, that, that, that's very much something that, that, that comes, comes through is that because of their uh, management problems, uh, that they had in the past they've effectively even though they have a manager have become self-managing and so far as they they've learned the insides out of the business um but not in a cynical way not like you know this is all about making money and so on and so forth it's just they want it comes over very much from Freddie's they want to create conditions whereby they can do their best work uh, and um, he's also uh, he's touchingly sort of impressed by his colleague's academic records. I mean, he goes on at some length about yes. Brian May's astronomy degree and so on. and so yes. forth. Um, and leaves his arts diploma he to, d-
2: to the very end. Yeah, he does with he, great he,
0: humility. He, he briefly mentions it. I mean, the, 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 the notion being that he's the only member of the band with an arts background. Yeah, while the others are all doing we're all doing academic subjects and so on and so forth. So anyway, very yeah,
2: no, I I really enjoyed it, and it and it he talks about Queen being sort of different, really, from any other rock bands, and wanting to sort of appeal to a very, very diverse audience. And it kind of... It reminded me, A, of sort of uh, Bohemian Rhapsody being number one on top of the pops week after week after week, yeah. seeing that video over and over <laughs> again. Um, but also just the sort of, you know, kind of ambivalent feelings that I certainly had about Queen and probably still do have about Queen.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's true. Interestingly enough, in the back Pages office recently, we actually listened through to some of their earlier albums and realised what a great hard rock band they were. I mean, they, they, they could knock out very, very good, tough, hard rock... Um, but I mean, Rhapsody, in a sense, was was a sort of distraction for what I'd initially understood the band to be. I mean, I'm, I'm about them. Yeah, but I think they've always given me a degree of pleasure and sometimes really great pleasure um
2: well, they could rock as, <laughs> rock. as, as john <laughs> Savage <Saffish> would say <laughs> they rock and and of course you know that brilliant moment in bohemian rhapsody yeah, yeah. where where they just let go and one always now thinks if the moment in wayne's world where in the car and the car <laughs> rocks <laughs> and, i mean but it but it, it really does yeah, rock yeah. and of course they could i mean they made some great pop singles they were a great, they were a sort of I mean, they were certainly inspired by Zeppelin, and he yep. mentioned Zeppelin yep. uh, among the influences that Robert Duncan talks to him about. But anyway, I mean, look, I'd never sat down and listened to an audio interview with Freddie Mercury before, so for me, it was interesting. I think he was an extraordinarily compelling yeah. star.
0: I, I, I think also in the interview that, I mean, he he deals with questions which he clearly has not a great deal of patience for very well. The the thing about the audience is interesting because I think um, that Robert Duncan was sort of implying that getting a very young audience somehow undermines the credibility of the band. And Freddie was having none of that, that he actually wants as broad an audience as possible, Welcome. I think it's one thing about Freddie Mercury is he loved his... He genuinely loved his audience in a way that many stars don't mm. um, you see him on stage and films and so on and so forth and this is a guy who absolutely adored playing to an audience and I think he really genuinely loved his audience yeah. in, in a way in, in a rather special way yeah Shall we get on to the new homepage?
2: Well, uh, yeah, I was just going to. In fact, the segue that occurred to me is Ooh. that among the influences yeah. that, that Freddie talks about is Joni Mitchell. He mentions, everybody seems to mention Joni Mitchell, Indeed. don't they? So he, even Queen were influenced by Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Um, and as it happens, Joni is 75 next week. Um, and so, uh, for a number of reasons, we are celebrating that on the RBP homepage um, with, with four items um, um, from the RBP archive. This ties in with the fact that we actually published... Uh, a, a collection um, of interviews and reviews um, uh, a couple of years ago, but it came out in America last year, uh, called Reckless Daughter. It's a, it's a Joni Mitchell anthology, essentially, from some of the very first stuff that was written about her when she was performing, you know, like the Troubadour in yep, L.A., yep. right up to, you know, the most recent interview that she gave. So, um, you know, we are great Joni fans in the RBP we office. Are. We yep. listen particularly to Court and Spark yep. a lot, don't we, Mark? Yep. And one of the items that uh, we've selected... For this week, for the homepage, is a review of "Court and Spark" by Michael Watt- Watts, one of the very best melody maker writers of that era. Um, and I think that "Court and Spark" certainly, along with "Hissing of Summer Lawns," remains my favourite period of journey What's yeah, got, your take? Well,
0: on? I mean, I've actually, for me, it was a love affair record. I was seeing this; I was just about to start art school. It was a summer before I started art school. And whilst I'd been at an education, further education college, scraping together enough O levels to get into art school, we had a trip to Brittany and I met this woman and I spent part of that summer commuting back and forth. And that record became sort of the record of that, curiously, of that relationship, even though it bore no relationship to it whatsoever. Very important record for me. I mean, I'd listened to Journey before, I'd kind of light blue a bit. But, you know, I mean, I'm talking about, let's say, I was, I was 18 in 1974. Up to that point, Joni was someone who girls listened to. That sounds a terrible thing to say, but, you know, those the, the, folky, the folky albums were sort of kind of things that the girls at school listened to. Court Spark had so much more richness musically. She, there's, a, there's really great musicians playing on it, really interesting and elaborate arrangements, beautifully played. And as a bloke, that gave me something to kind of get my teeth into, who, as a bloke who wasn't really a folk fan at all. So it, it it was my gateway drug to Joni, without a doubt.
2: Yeah, you were you were a free man in Brittany. Though. I was a free man in Brittany,
0: <laughs> free man in Saint Marlowe.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're actually putting together a Spotify playlist uh, for, of twenty tracks to mark the occasion of Joni's seventy fifth, and I think. Um, I think I've chosen six tracks, three from um, Court Spark and mm-hmm. three from Hissing of Summer Lawns. Mm-hmm. So to me, those two albums are, are, are just sort of ineluctably conjoined because it's some of the same. You don't add Azura to that list. I think of Azura as very different, actually. Okay. Um, I do. I, it's it's journey going in a, in a different direction. So you, I I love the sophistication, the richness, the textures. the the chords of those those two mid-70s albums I do think they're among the greatest records ever made actually and I rather agree with you I mean actually the first journey album my book was probably for the roses I was too young to buy blue but i've never quite knelt at the altar of blue as so many do no. i mean i don't know why i don't i just don't think it's as great as people say i mm-hmm. understand the kind of mm-hmm. naked intimacy mm-hmm. and confessionality mm-hmm. of it i, I think
0: that's true I, I think the one thing that certainly could call the spark is the first example of is we forget how great a musician joanie mitchell was yeah and in a way the way she was before sort of Downplayed her own abilities and imagination. And Courtney Spart was the first record where she was kind of saying, actually, no, this is who I am. Mm. I, I can not only can I play, I can get other people to play mm. uh, I, and produce really interesting textures and really interesting sort of music.
2: So yeah. And of course there was a sort of reaction, if almost a backlash to this very different kind of Joni that she was presenting. I mean, uh, uh, you know, it, the album Hissing of, of Summer Lawns was not very well reviewed in Rolling Stone, for example. I think it was... I think it. it they called it the worst album of the year. Um, <laughs> I remember when I interviewed her in, I think it was 1994, you know, she... There was this idea that she had no right to to sing or write about kind of affluent people yep. in Malibu, for example. And those albums are very—I mean, Court Spark is very LA. It's very oh, Beverly Hills. Entirely. It's very Malibu. You know. and, yeah. and and there was that picture of her in the swimming pool and some of summer lawns and people people like this is Joni has somehow it's like Dylan going electric. And not <laughs> she's sort of abandoned us. She's betrayed us. And and I remember her saying to me, do "You know, I mean, I, I'm a writer, and yep. I, I think I." Can write about whatever I want to yes. write about. It doesn't mean that I necessarily approve or endorse yes. people, the lifestyles of the rich uh, and famous. But this is this was my new environment. I, I think you can also add to that, there was a sort of
0: sexist component in that. Absolutely. That, 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 that as a woman, um, she was only believable to men if she was like barefoot in the kitchen in her mm. Laura Ashley dress. Mm. And the moment she starts sort of appearing as someone with money, with... I time with uh, notions of luxury and all kinds of things like that. It completely undercuts that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I I, I can't really develop that much further. But I mean,
2: I think you're right that that Joni has, like so many female artists and musicians, struggled with sexism, and she was one of the first to really say, "I'm." You know, I am my own woman and she intimidated a lot of men mm-hmm. and they didn't like it. Yeah. Uh, she worked her way through quite a few men who just simply couldn't really kind of cut it, I think. You know, in the, in the journey orbit. I yeah. mean, from, from Graham Nash through to I don't know John Guerin who's the drummer on uh-huh. these albums we're talking about you know I mean and, and she's a spiky character there's no all right, doubt all right. oh yeah well I have to say the woman that, that I talked to for, for I mean I think almost two hours back in in the 90s was extremely charming vivacious funny and, mm-hmm. and, and even flirtatious I really liked to enjoyed her yes there, I know there, there, I could have days. been yeah. anyway <laughs> mo- moving <laughs> swiftly on, on. <laughs> as you like to say shall we just um, en passant let, let us note that every week on Rock's Back Pages we feature one of our writers um, we call this spotlight almost famous after the Cameron Crow film and this week we are featuring the great Adrian Devoy who is really one of the very best writers from that kind of batch of Q Mm -hmm. uh, guys and girls um, in the 80s and 90s and um, so uh, we're very pleased to have Adrian on board came on board probably two or three years ago so we actually got one of his very earliest pieces not for Q um, but an interview that he did with with uh, Morrissey and Johnny Marr from 1983 from that magazine I can't even remember it's called international music (laughs) musician (laughs) international International musician international musician yes 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 a horribly designed <laughs> dreadful dreadful covers but I, maybe that's where Adrian got his kind of foot in the door um, and then a piece i remember really enjoying from q from 1994 where he managed to get um Björk, pj harvey and Tori amos together around a table or in the same room uh, a sort of summit meeting between these these three extraordinary talents well i certainly am a huge Bjork and pj Her- harvey fan slightly less so of, of Tori amos but i think i think Bjork and uh, uh, and polly harvey are two of the most extraordinary female you know writers Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and and artists that uh, pop music is produced So, and then finally uh, an interview with Lionel Richie from 2015 for The Mail on Sunday for whom he, he regularly contributes I haven't read that what, what, how does Lionel come out in it? Lionel comes out really well I mean I think he, he, he sort of arri- <laughs> arrives and I think Lionel sort of getting out of his Beverly Hills swimming pool <laughs> um, so but I mean no he comes over very well yeah. actually it's a, it's a really good interview um, so that that's sort of what we're featuring free the Joni staff and mm-hmm. Adrian's pieces are, are some of the free content on Rock's Back Pages. Um, why don't we look, Mark, at some of the pieces that you have overseen in terms of going into the library? Sure. Um, well, let's start off in 1966, Dawn James. Dawn James
0: is a wonderful writer. We're very glad to have recently got her on board, Rock's Back Pages. She wrote for Rave and Mirabelle. Um, and in a sense, she's less a music journalist than a personality interviewer but she happens to be interviewing musicians and I think it's meant immensely sensitive. That she, she, she writes about their personalities in a detail which was very rare in the 60s, certainly at that point. Anyway, this is an interview with Keith Moon where he actually comes over as a complete tit, frankly. Um, you, you know, I mean, he, he, he's, he's, a, he's a sort of a ghastly show-off at school that you just want to thump. And, and I think that's actually who he was in many
2: respects. Well he's the original kid with ADHD. Yeah,
0: isn't he, really? um, and he's, he, he just keeps making increasing some hyped-up statements in order to probably to wind up Dawn. And she's... One thing about Dawn James she's completely unflappable. So she sort of, you know, just takes it in her stride. Next thing I'd really like to... Well, there's uh, Max Jones' interviews with Sarith Franklin, which is in 1970, which is terrific. She's a difficult person to interview, but he gets quite a lot out of her. Very early interviews, uh, the lovely, marvellous Bonnie Raitt... From, by Joel Selvin from the San Francisco Chronicle, in 1972. Um, Tony Cummings, great writer about black music, for Black Music Magazine, does a thing on sort of the the, the
2: the lower underbelly of the Philadelphia soul scene. I want to just quickly interject and ask about the piece about Guy Piao, if that's how you pronounce <laughs> it. Uh, Guy Piao. Peeler, hey, Pele Art, but um, about yes. his extraordinary... Rock uh, dreams. Rock dreams, yeah. which... Um, I, I, and it just... I mention it because it was... It had such an impact on me when I bought it, when it came out in, in I believe, 74. Uh, uh,
0: absolutely, And it yeah. was just
2: a sort of... It was such an interesting visual take Stick. on rock mythologies. It,
0: it, it certainly was. This is an Andrew Bailey interview with him for Rolling Stone in 74. Um, and... Um, but as a book i mean again i my my brother bought it when it came out and he's particularly strong and again this is mentioned in this piece on pe- particularly the rolling stones he 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 kind of keeps revisiting the rolling stones throughout the book uh, and and at the time rolling stones were still at sort of at the height of their devilish mythology before in fact uh, as it happens, they were on the slide by then. But but he they they're very much central to this book. It is an extraordinary
2: piece of well, work. Was that an like, incredible picture of them in sort of, stockings and suspenders, yep. isn't it? Yeah, um, which was really sort of <laughs> was you um, know really did stick it, in the mind. But I did I still have in fact I. I lost my original copy mm-hmm. and re-bought it yeah. in one of those second-hand stores on the Charing Cross Road, I think it was, or maybe it was Record and Tape Exchange. I love the book. I still love it.
0: Very interesting. I mean, for me, in fact, again, it's mentioned in the interviews, uh, Diana Ross in a limousine, completely kind of glittery and shiny, and through the windows you see the black ghetto and people standing on the street corners. Brilliant. uh, I I thought that that was terrific at the time. And and actually, having done this, I went and looked back through my copy after uh, proofreading this interview and uh, found it fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Moving on. Um, 1979, Sylvie Simmons sees the runaways at Whiskey O'Go-Go. I've learnt... After I proofread it, she talks about bad, bad atmosphere in the dressing room, it not being a great show. It was actually literally one of their last shows, I think they played two more shows after that, before right. they broke up.
2: Right. Which is at this timely because, of course, the Joan Jett documentary yes. Bad Reputation has just come out.
0: Yep. Yep. Uh, Jesus and Mary Chain, very early interview for, by Neil Taylor for the NME. They come out with some great quotable stuff. Um, I have a certain fondness for the Jesus and Mary Chain. Um, a, a, large inter- a long interview with uh, Randy Newman by Mark Rowland from musician, 1988 in Musician. Randy Newman always gives great interviews. He's just such an interesting He fireman. certainly
2: does. I've been uh, privileged enough to interview him twice. He's, he is a delight. Um, and I actually pulled... The, the poor quote that we feature on the homepage every week is comes, obviously, from one of the new pieces. Uh, this seemed to be a very timely quote to Mark Rowland 1988 when Land of Dreams came out, because Dixie Flyer is this extraordinary song about being a Jewish kid from Los Angeles mm-hmm. who goes every summer um, to, to spend the holidays with his relatives right. in Louisiana, and it has all those extraordinary lines about doing what the Gentiles do. Um, so there's this, So they talk about being jewish in america and this quote um right on the back of the appalling shootings at the synagogue in pittsburgh really caught my eye and i know caught yeah. yours to be jewish in america is different no one wants to be an american more than a jew irving berlin was more american than john wayne um So we feature that prominently on the homepage this week. And, um, yeah, I mean, um, I've not read the interview, apart from that quote, but I know it'll be great. It it, it is very good. He talks, in fact,
0: in some detail about his relationship with the South and so on and so forth. Anyway, it's great stuff. Lastly, last thing I'd like to at least feature is um, Neil Kilkahn marvellous. Into a review of Wu-Tang Clan's "Forever" uh, Melody Maker '97. Neil Kulkan is kind of favourite writer of mine. He's one of these people who just sort of goes charging off on a sort of marvellous rants. He claims that this is possibly the greatest hip hop album ever. <laughs> i posted that on facebook and he came back saying well i may have changed my mind slightly. Well, been a lot of albums since, <laughs> yeah but, uh, but also uh, but, but but also you know he sees its faults now it is overlong it is sprawling and chaotic mm. but the sheer mad enthusiasm of his review is just really com- compelling reading it's terrific stuff
2: well we love the wu-tang don't we we do uh, we do i know i know lots of kind of white one even, critics love the Wu-Tang One of them claimed to know me in San Francisco Airport. We met them, yeah. didn't we? And he said, I know you. Well, this is a very bizarre encounter. where We were waiting <laughs> at the airport San Francisco <laughs> Airport. And we suddenly realised that in the departure lounge with us was most of the Wu-Tang yes. Clan. Not that I'd ever done a head count. <laughs> but we did get into a conversation with You That was who, who was. recently published his mm. sort of memoirish That's book. That's right. Which Faber published. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, but... I did find them... Ext- I, I just loved what Derisa did musically. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, quite apart from the sort of quality of, you know, of, of the, the hip-hop guys, this, the rappers, yeah. the, the the method mans and so forth. I could listen to a lot of Wu-Tang just on the basis of what he does with sort of Southern Soul yes, samples, yes. which was really unusual uh, at the uh, time.
0: I, I think the other thing I find interesting about Wu-Tang Clan is, is that whilst they were nationally huge in a huge musical form, they were actually extraordinarily local. I mean, there was Staten Island. Um, they weren't part of the major sort of African-American urban centres of Atlanta or New York or Los Angeles and so on. I mean, Staten Island is technically New York. Yeah. But but there is, which is kind of is part of how they sort of developed some of this cottage industry approach to what they did, um, which they then extended when they moved to, what's it, Illinois and built bought a farm or something mad like that. but they're, they're, I just find the dynamic of within them and of them really interesting and yeah you're right they, they, they produce some lovely sounding stuff
2: a couple of pieces that I'd, I'd like to just flag mm-hmm. up um, from the last sort of 20 years uh, one would be um, Mark Kemp was at one time the reviews editor or maybe features editor at Rolling Stone um, and he then went on to very Cushy job at MTV in New York. Um, he is now back in you know his, his <laughs> sort of home state of North Carolina, yep, yep. where is where is where he, he lives. So he's a Southern guy. Wrote an amazing book called Dixie Lullaby. Yep. Um, and uh, until recently was the editor at uh, Creative Loafing online. And he wrote this piece about being at MTV in the real kind of heyday of the boy band era, when the Backstreet Boys roamed, roamed. The land in the hearts of teenage girls. So it's it, it from 2012, and it's a very interesting, um, you know, fly on the wall piece about being right in the midst of of that kind of hysteria. Um, and then finally. Um, There's a very, very long interview by Larry LeBlanc for Celebrity Access with Toby Mamis, who happens to be one of our writers as well. And Toby has an extraordinary uh, uh, career that takes in management, writing journalism publicity you know he's sort of he really is a zealig
0: of the industry
2: (laughs) he's he's sort of there he's known everyone he's worked with everyone most famously um, you know Alice Cooper I think he's still involved in Alice Cooper's management but he's sort of there in the background with 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 John and Yoko around (laughs) the white panther John Sinclair era you know he knew the New York Dolls you know I think uh, 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 the Runaways Um, I mean he claims that he tried to get Kim Fowley to produce um, The Runaways doing I Love Rock and Roll and Kim wouldn't do it because he couldn't get half a publishing. <laughs> so Joan Jett post-Runaways, ended up having this sort of ginormous hit with it. So you can imagine, Kim's probably still turning in his grave at the memory of that. But it's a a great interview, um, and we're delighted to have both Larry and and Toby on the site. We were joking earlier about Toby's, but we've got five writers called Toby. I know, I know. And one of them's a woman. There's only one Barney.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I keep keep
2: all the others out. Um, So that's essentially uh, what we're... At bringing live to you on Roxback Pages this week. So, this has been us, Mark Pringle, myself, yep. Barney Hoskins, Definitely. for Rocksback Pages. For Rocks Back and Pages. for you. Thank you. That was the Rocksback Pages podcast presented by Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle. The producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. You can find all the articles they talked about and
1: thousands more, as well as hundreds of full length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com.